Thank you for listening to the Resources for Integrated Care podcast series, Best Practices for Implementing Enrollee Advisory Committees, August 31st, 2022. In this podcast, Kristen Corcoran, a senior consultant at the Lewin Group, facilitates a panel discussion with Lola Akintobi, a consumer and community engagement consultant for the Center for Consumer Engagement in Health Innovation at Community Catalyst, Michaela Arsenault, a project manager at Central Oregon Health Council, Robin Rohr, a manager for enterprise consumer experience at CareSource, Heather Reynolds, an insight lead for enterprise consumer experience at CareSource, and Walt Malik, an enrollee advisory committee member for CareSource. During this discussion, panelists offer strategies and promising practices regarding enrollee advisory committees. So we'll move now to our panel discussion with all of the speakers. And our first question is for Michaela, Robin, and Heather. What enrollee feedback received during COVID-19 can help plans leverage to improve the operation of EACs in future emergencies? So during COVID, our members really wanted to build social connection. They were feeling isolated. And so that was the most important during our meeting is building that social time into our meetings, making space for it, not just having it before or after the meetings, but really structuring it and having those get-to-know-you questions and holding space where members could, you know, ask about, you know, another members, you know, how was your granddaughter's birthday or, you know, how was that camping trip that you went on? How did that go? And this really built trust and kind of really cohesion within the group in order to kind of set us up for, you know, when, when harder conversations happen during our meetings, you know, there's, there's that trust there. The second is holding our meetings virtually, and we had to shift towards that during COVID. And we have a large geographic region, and, you know, the added benefit besides safety concerns is that, you know, these meetings are easier to attend, and it took out the commute time, um, and we had greater participation from our more rural communities. Thank you, Michaela. Robin, in person, one of the member types that we found that was a, really a, a good perk of all our long-term care members represented in the councils because they were able to join virtually. So that was actually one added perk to be able to reach a further demographic within our population. So when we do go back into person, we're going to make sure that we are able to still leverage the virtual platform in those in-person meetings to make sure those numbers can still be represented. Heather, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was going to say kind of similar, you know, to Michaela and, and build a little more from Robin. I think one of the greatest, uh, you know, things to come out of the pandemic is kind of proving that we can go to the virtual setting and really make that work you know, as long as we take a few steps like the instruction manual, like having troubleshooters, we can certainly extend the way that we think about these councils to not just be in person. There are certainly a lot of benefits. Walt mentioned a few. You know, there are definitely times we love to be in the communities with our members and we love to interact with them and they love to interact with each other in person. But it is nice to know that as an organization now, we certainly have a great process for expansion if need to into the future to add additional councils in more rural populations or with, you know, members where, you know, being in person just is more of a barrier. It's nice to know that we now have a framework and, and process that, that we know works. 
to really continue to engage in members despite whether you know we're, we're online or not. And so that was, I think, a really great outcome. I think the other thing too that that we heard from our our members, you know, in our councils that helps us, you know, even you know, it gives us something to think about even for future meetings more is just again to Michaela's point, having that time to just make connections even when you're in the virtual setting. And I think one thing that was really great is again we, we would bring in speakers from like our, our, our mental health and addiction services team, for example, to say what you know, what are some tips to just staying connected, staying well from a mental and emotional standpoint during a time that's so uncertain and where you feel so isolated? And so we will certainly even more than we've already done in the future leverage speakers so that we're not just getting feedback from members, but we're educating them and giving them opportunities to to, to learn and get advice rather than just you know giving things to us. So I think that was a great outcome as well. Thank you all. Our next question is for Walt. How can EAC leaders ensure that member voices are heard? The way I've worked about it, I usually go up, the, if it's after the meeting, something hasn't been dealt with. I go up and talk to one of the leaders who was dealing with a particular issue that I had a concern, and then I would follow up on that. They would often give me a number to call or another person to contact, and those things have always proved to work out. So. Make your voice be known to those people. Talk to the leaders. And if you don't get it resolved, they're open for you to give them a call back and to follow through with it. Thank you, Walt. And our next question is for Lola. What are some best practices or lessons learned in incorporating health equity into EACs? And do you have any trainings or education that you recommend? Yes. So I would say the first lesson and one that's really important is that when members are engaged and they are allowed to not only give their perspective, but they know that they're working towards making changes and that their work actually matters, members end up having a care system that they fully believe in. And that is huge, not only for themselves, but for their family members, for people around them, because word of mouth also makes a difference. In the larger picture, you end up having things like reduced avoidable healthcare use and improved health and quality of care for members. So it matters to have members involved. In terms of education, there are a few resources that are available both through Community Catalyst and then also through CMS OMH. So Community Catalyst has a report called Supporting meaningful engagement through community advisory councils, and it's lessons from the Oregon Health Authority. So it shows work that has happened in previous advisory councils and what meaningful engagement looks like, what are the benefits and what are the challenges of this work. And then CMS OMH also has tools. So they have a training on achieving health equity there's also a five-step worksheet on disparities impact statements. And then CMS OMH also has personalized TA on health equity and minority health. So that combination of things really helps you get up and going and provides a little extra support as you undertake this work. Thank you, Lola. And our next question is for Lola and Michaela. How can EACs build relationships in underrepresented populations and recruit members to best represent them? 
Lola? Yes. It really takes time and authentic engagement. I often let people know that if an organization is showing up only when they want to recruit people and only when they want people to participate, it's too late. So you need to actually establish establish a presence in communities in advance and start attending events, getting connected to local healthcare systems, getting connected to community-based organizations to start connecting to people who will eventually become members of the EAC. And then I think it's also important as you are thinking about recruitment to also think about retention. Too often we only think about how to get people in the doors, but we don't think about how to keep them there once they arrive. And so in terms of that retention piece, make sure, the pe- make sure that the work is meaningful. Members know when their feedback is just checking a box versus when their feedback is going towards actually making systemic change. And for folks who are giving their time to travel to a location or they're giving their time to log on to a meeting, they're having to arrange for childcare, they want to make sure that that feedback goes somewhere. So that part is also important for retention. Thank you, Lola. Michaela? Yes, I agree with everything Lola said. And to kind of add on that, yes, I would connect with trusted organizations and associations that are serving those underrepresented populations and participate and collaborate if you can with events or you know outreach efforts that they're doing. Get out, talk with those communities, serve those communities. You know, are they doing back to school events where you can help serve or provide, you know, school supplies or masks? And if you know if you're looking for recruiting members to best represent them, you can, I mean, you can look for people that are passionate about the work, interested in advocating, and it's a bonus that they're well connected in the community. But I really wouldn't be caught up in finding the best person. I think it's unrealistic to expect a member to represent an entire population. Thank you, Michaela. Our next question is for Michaela, Robin, and Heather. How do you ensure that your EAC is representative of the communities you serve? Michaela? So we collect demographic data on our EAC membership applications, and we follow our state's guidance and compare it to our region's whole population demographic data. And I believe this is mostly census data. And we look at things like race, ethnicity, geography, age, disability, and sexual orientation. And then we base our recruitment efforts based off of that information. Thank you. Robin? Yeah, we do a little bit different approach, but I'm intrigued at Michaela's approach. We work with our analytics department to do heat maps to identify concentrations of members in the different regions or areas that I was talking about earlier. And then we embed ourselves in the communities we serve. So we will choose a facility, as Michaela said, and I mentioned earlier, a library, a community center, something that is, you know, embedded in their in their lives and their areas that they're familiar with. And then we will send out invitations that are mapped within a geographic radius to that location. So, you know, we, we say within a 10 or 15 minute commute, we make sure it's on a bus route, we make sure it's handicapped accessible and well known by the members and they feel safe coming to. And then we send out those invitations. So we may end up sending out, you know, 3,000 invitations to get, you know, 10 to 15 members to become established members of the council. 
it's also easier, as I mentioned, to get people who may not be able to come in person as well. So when you're doing virtual, being able to include members that are you know, institutional members, for example, that are long-term care that may not be able to travel. So, you know, it's a different, a little bit different approach. We do it a wide random to get that diversity and make sure that we're getting representation from lots of different perspectives, ethnicities, abilities, disabilities, et cetera. And then if we do need to round out from that perspective, we utilize our care managers or community reps or others in the, in the community to help us identify members who may be good candidates for participation in the council. Thank you, Robin. Heather? Yeah, I mean, I obviously agree with everything Robin said, but the other thing I, I just wanted to hit, I think it is so important that we take that step to be at facilities that are truly in the communities where our members, you know, live and work and their kids go to school, right, because we really get a sense of, you know, who they are, where, where are they from, what are challenges they face, we're right in their communities, and what really is nice about that as well is that when we have when we're a person or when we're on the phone, we invite, you know, folks like our care management team or, or community community reps that we have that work face-to-face -face with members. We invite those folks that are also in the same regions or cities as the members on the phone because they provide a really great perspective on, you know, if a member is having issues with, let's say, food access. You know, we have folks on in the meetings that go to church there. They do this food drive every couple weeks. So it's like we, we really try to personalize that experience, again, making sure that we are really embedded into those communities, that we're better understanding their challenges, and that we're there to really help solve those challenges in, in a personal way. So I think really being in those communities is huge rather than, you know, bringing them to Dayton to the CareSource headquarters office. We are, we meet them where they are. And I think that's really, I think that goes a long way with our members as well. Thank you all. So we'll now turn to Q&A with our presenters and they will answer some of the questions that you've asked with your registration or during the webinar. So our first question is for Walt. The attendee said, thanks for sharing your perspective, Walt. Can you please share what made you say yes and agree to join the EAC? Okay. Well, like most people probably first come to their first time, I was looking to see what it would do for me. But as I, the meeting went on and I started to understand that it was something that would reach out to the whole community of uh, CareSource, that it became important to me. It wasn't just a self-focus issue. It was a I can be part of something bigger than I am. And that's what I got from that very first meeting, and I was very thankful for it. And through the process, I did get some of myself things taken care of. So I'm thankful. Thank you, Walt. And our next question is for Michaela. Can you discuss how you manage the EAC internally, such as what teams are involved or how many staff are managing the program? Yes. So. We are a separate nonprofit, and we're a small nonprofit that manages the larger health plan CCO. And so for our team, we have two coordinators or project managers, and myself and another staff member, and then we also have admin support. And with that, we coordinate with Pacific First, our CCO, and a couple of their staff members to to bring in processes and really work with them on bringing back information, bringing involvement, or involving our community advisory council with their processes. And what was the other part of the question, or did I answer it? 
yeah, that's fine, Michaela. It was about the, the structure okay. of the EAC and how you manage it internally. Great. Thanks so much. So our next question is for Robin. Are you finding that your members prefer either virtual or in-person meetings? Do you need to adjust the agenda to accommodate the meeting setting? Yeah, surprisingly, I thought people would like the virtual format even more than the in-person, but we're finding they miss the camaraderie that they find at the in-person meetings, especially for the dual eligibles and Medicaid populations. Our marketplace members, I think they prefer probably that virtual approach, but a lot of our members, especially our dual cares or Medicaid, like the in-person experience. The, the groups really bond over a little bit of time, and we really enjoy seeing each other. So, yeah, I, I definitely say that the in-person are preferred. They also allow you to do things that are very difficult to do virtually, so things like the website user testing or using laptops. We are able to get feedback on materials, and sending those ahead of time does help inform the feedback that they give us. But I still think being able to do it in person and walk through it and have them circle things and, you know, highlight things that aren't, aren't easy to understand or make recommendations are easier in person. Thank you, Robin. And our next question is for Lola. Can you please share why it is important to engage enrollees that are representative of the duly eligible population in a state? Yes. I think it's really important to engage folks who are representative of the dual enrollee population is because they're the ones with the lived experience. So they can see things that we cannot. All of us are really passionate about the work that we do. We're very intentional about the work that we do. But I think at times we tend to approach health, health care, health plans from a high-level perspective, and we don't see the things that enrollees see. And when we make sure that there is a representative group of folks, we're able to see the disparities a little bit better. And not only see the disparities, but understand what are the implications. So when people are identifying travel and transportation as a disparity, what does that actually mean with the healthcare that they're seeking? When they are talking about financial burdens, what does that mean? So it allows us to understand the population better, and through that, it allows us to create better programs, policies, and serve members better. Thank you, Ella. And we have time for one more question. So, Heather, this question is for you. In addition to your vendor who helps with administrative tasks, do you have additional staff dedicated to the EAC, and which staff members slash roles support the EAC? So the, the consumer experience team, uh, Robin and I's team, we are in charge of managing and, and really at the start of our advisory councils, even for you know our, the very first one, consumer experience was really charged with building those. And we did not start with a research partner, so those were built when it was when we had less meetings, less lines of business, those were completely managed within the consumer experience team. And it's not our only role or responsibility on the care source team, on our CX team. And so I would say in terms of dedicated staff, yes, we have consumer experience you know, team members in addition to just the two of us for different lines of business that really help manage. But it is not 
any one person's full-time job to manage councils only. And so it's something that's dispersed among the team for different lines of business of focus. So for example, on, on the consumer experience team, I am an insight lead really taking charge of like our Ohio and Indiana Medicaid population. So I play, you know, a role in helping manage those along with our research partner, Robin, you know, and, and other teammates from a DSNP or our MyCare population marketplace, right? It's divided amongst the CX team. But outside of the CX team for a few of our markets, as those have been added to our business and as as there's been a need to add, you know, for example, advisory councils in our Georgia Medicaid market. There's actually now roles being built in to those market teams that are in charge, you know, some of their role and responsibility is to manage meetings for those markets. So while CX still manages the legacy markets, if you will, the ones that have started, we've started to partner with roles that have been embedded in those other markets that, that can really help drive some of the other lines of business. And we're seeing that happen more and more with new markets that we're entering, that they're kind of putting in role descriptions to really manage those because we find them to be so important. And, you know, CareSource, we, we conduct advisory councils for lines of business that are not required because we get so much benefit out of them. So our marketplace members, for example, we're not required to do those. But we do them anyway because we, we know how much value they provide to the organization. So as those grow, as our markets grow, as the need for councils grow, you know, there are people embedded into market teams rather than just a consumer experience that, that really help manage those meetings as well. Great. Thank you, Heather. So thank you, presenters, for answering questions. And thank you all for attending today. Thank you for listening. This podcast is presented by the Lewin Group and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to helping beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts and resources, please visit our website or follow us on Twitter for more details. Our Twitter handle is at integrate underscore care. You can also find resources for integrated care on LinkedIn to stay up to date with our recent products and technical assistance.